Hello. Welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast. I'm your Hello. Host. Good to be here again. <laughs> Yay. Rachel Mills, thank you so much. Thank You're you, Liz Reitzig. And so knowledgeable. I'm always picking your brain on things economic and no, that's my job, Liz, to pick your brain. <laughs> well, it's a back and forth, right? Okay. That's what it's all about. We learn from each other. Community. Yeah. So today's topic is one that we do not want it to be alarming or sensational. We want it to be grounded and factual, but um, provide context and caution. Right? Sure. Talking about food shortages. What does yep. it mean? What does it not mean? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, as you pointed out earlier, it has been all over the news. Um, and it's always good to have your head on a swivel. Um, but Rachel, uh, you're so great about getting us grounded in, in time. So mm-hmm. what is today? Uh, today is June 20th. 2022. Yesterday was Father's Day and Juneteenth. Um, So that's a little bit of context. We've got midterm elections coming up in November, and that always affects the news cycle. Everyone wants to grab your attention. We are uh, currently going through primaries um, in politics. And um, I mentioned before, I was somewhat of a media professional on Capitol Hill, Uh, For Ron Paul, I was his communications uh, director for five years, and uh, in all my years in in media, I I have some thoughts. I do tend to get sucked into the news cycle, like that's my natural habitat, (laughs) is to be obsessively consuming news, but I have learned over time that you do need to take a step back you do need to understand that all of those news outlets desperately, desperately want and need your eyeballs in order to sell advertising and to stay afloat. That is their job is to grab your attention. And there is a lot of competition for your attention and where your attention is most likely drawn is the most alarmist and, ah, you know, headline. We've all heard of clickbait. So it's good to be aware of that. Um, And in light of that, when you read about news shortages and food uh, production factories burning down and shutting down, you do have to kind of keep in mind, there's a baseline for these things happening. Fires happen in buildings all the time across the country. And sometimes the media, they choose to hype up these events and they will focus on every single one. Um, Same with shark attacks. If they want to gin up like a a shark panic, they will just focus on every single shark attack. And it seems like, oh my gosh, sharks are such a huge danger. When it's like, if you look at incidences that they're focusing on versus overall background incidences, it's the same. They're just focusing your attention and trying to get you hyped up. Um, So keep that in mind. I'm not saying that the factory incidences that we've been hearing about are not anything to be alarmed about. I haven't actually looked at the statistics very carefully myself, but I'm just aware of that phenomenon. I'm trying to keep a cool head 
with that being said, though, the formula shortage was real. <laughs> that was real. And it was due to uh, factories being shut down by the FDA, you know, for whatever reason. And I think that factory is still having a hard time opening back up. But I mean, the, the fact is, the formula supply chain was vulnerable because there's apparently only five factories in the country that make baby formula. You take one or two or three of those offline, you've got a big, big problem. And that's what happened. And that is what could be happening with other food production facilities right now. But it's just good to keep a cool head and keep in mind how the media works. That's what I have to say. Thank you, Rachel. It's, it's always so good to have that context and to think about it in those terms that it's like we we are as human beings, we are programmed to be triggered by this alarm alarmism. And so taking a step back, taking a pause, deep breath and really examining it from a logical standpoint can be so helpful in these things. Now, I want to throw another context on top of everything you just said but you started out talking about our human created holidays. And I wanna also mention that we are one day away from the solstice, which is the longest day of the year, which is a natural phenomenon. And it's going to occur whether or not humans are here making up our own holidays. And uh, that being said, I mean, there's some very worthy holidays. I'm not, I'm not disparaging that at all. I'm adding a layer of natural occurrence on top of this and saying that in these super long days, of course, our food production is quite high. And we need that. We absolutely need that at this time of year. And at the same time, we cannot allow that abundance right now to lull us into a false sense of security because these things happen on cycles. And so some of the things that are happening right now are very real. And they are creating additional vulnerabilities in an already vulnerable food system. And the effects of some of what we're seeing now, we won't feel those effects for months or years. Okay, for one example is beef production. Now, cows, cattle, beef needs approximately two years to, to mature to the point of processing. So if we're seeing a whole bunch of mature cattle die in the heat waves now or suffer other ridiculous consequences, we're not gonna feel those effects for two years. And because of that gap, there might be time there to recover, right? So I want us to look at this and examine this conversation, both in terms of, we are really looking at serious vulnerabilities in our food system and we have to view this in terms of cycles and seasons rather than a news cycle, which is rapid. Yeah. Um, have you looked at that 10,000 cows dropping dead in the night story with any depth? Because I've seen it in passing, but I haven't really looked into it closely. I haven't had a chance to really read a few articles and, and, dive deep into that. Do, do you have a take on what, what happened there? Like what's going on? I don't know the specifics of that situation. Mm -hmm. What I can say very generally is that if we create, if we design a system 
where cattle are artificially placed on uh, lots that have no shade and no grass and no, uh, not their natural habitat. And then we see a lot of uh, casualties from that system that is not unexpected. So I don't know if that particular incident is true or not, but the, the overall concept of it is very true. We have all of these vulnerabilities built in. Okay, but um, just looking at the economics, I, I know you're not a fan of these large production uh, farmers, but 10,000 cows, yep. I'm just, I'm spitballing. A figure I saw was 2,300 per head is what one farmer claims they were offered uh, per cow. That's $23 million um, to a, a farmer, a cattle rancher. With, I mean, I, I would think they would have the shade and the water situation all set to not lose that $23 million investment, like just from an economic standpoint. Like, I, I wouldn't think that would just happen. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think there's so many things wrapped up in that, Rachel. And I don't know what I keep going back to. What I keep thinking about is that the U.S. government many years ago uh, participated, designed, and participated in a massive killing of American bison because that was the, the primary food source of the native people. And so, I mean, that's, that's just something that comes to top of mind. I'm not saying that that's what happened here. I'm just saying that I keep thinking about that. Um, but when it, when it comes to these farms that are set up as, uh, as investments rather than, I mean, these, the, 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 the huge feedlots, these are not what you and I, when we say farm, that's not what we are thinking of. When most people say farm, it's not what they're thinking of. These are set up as uh, economic, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? But, but you, well, they're, you can, they're developing an investment, you know? Yes, exactly. It's not about the animals. It's not about the farm. It's not about the farm family. <clears throat> And but so, I, I, but from an but, economic standpoint, I wouldn't think they would dehydrate their investment. You know, I'm I'm thinking right. like a producer. You know, like why why would they just do that? There must be something. There must be more to the story. A mm -hmm. and B. Um, how impactful is ten thousand uh, cattle in the grand scheme of things? Like, is that you know, a fraction of a percent of our beef production, or is, is that significant? Like that, it's only 10,000 cows, but I mean, right. and, and, and people like 10,000 cows, that means I won't have steak ever again. Like, it's like, let's put this in perspective. Like, is that a lot of cows based on the entire inventory inventory of the United States, or is that a fraction? That's such a small fraction. And when you like, think about this too. So Yes, that's an investment, but all of these huge corporations, they have insurance and they have um, certain certain fail-safes. Like they're not gonna lose on that. You know what I mean? But also look at when you see, now at one point I added it all up. I don't remember, but something like in the last 10 years, we've had literally a billion pounds of meat recalled. Okay. Last 10 years, okay. That's last a lot. So it's a lot. I mean, whatever, whatever period, I mean, even if it was 50 years, that's a huge amount of meat recalled. And so then you're looking at it, it's like, okay, well, could that meat go to pet food? Okay, some of it absolutely probably could. 
but what happens to the rest of it? And what happens when you take that amount of meat outside of our outside of our supply chain? What happens? Or maybe it goes into further processing. And so it gets turned into um, cooked dinners or whatever it is, right? It depends on the situation, but that's a huge amount of meat. Just like on the face of it, 10,000 cows, is, that is a lot of meat too, right? Yeah. So, but there are, there are things in place that, that the, these enormous processors and enormous producers are not the ones left holding the bag. We are, we are, right? Prices go up or um, insurance payouts go up. So we pay more because in, their insurance has gone up, you know, whatever that case is, it always comes back to us. And in these situations, like I'm not worried about these, the loss of 10,000 cows affecting our, whether or not we can get a steak for our next holiday, right? right or the summer right. coming up. I, I don't think that's the, the most serious issue. What I think is the most serious issue and something that demands the attention of conscientious, thoughtful people is the stratification of our culture. And the fact that whatever food shortages come about or whatever price increases we're going to see affect different people differently. Oh, for sure. And so a lot of families will be able to reprioritize or will be able to absorb rising costs or will be able to choose different foods. But I mean, the formula example is a great one because. Not, you're not bugs. Baby, I am not choosing bugs over steak. That's never going to happen. <laughs> I don't mean that. I don't mean that. Uh, but the, the difference between, I don't know, this kind of oatmeal and that kind of oatmeal. Right. I mean, or, or certain kinds of vegetables over other kinds of vegetables or chicken versus beef, right? For the most part, like I think a lot of us, we're not going to be worrying about hunger. We're going to be worrying about well, now we can't do all those fun activities we wanted to do because more of the budget's going to food, but we have that flexibility, right? Most of us, most of us do, but because of the stratification, some of us don't. And so the conclusion here, <laughs> yeah. it becomes very important that conscientious people think now about ways to uh, diversify our food supply and our food systems so that the fewer people are affected by whatever shortages or massive price increases we see. Yes. Yes. It, that, that is one thing to say that it's quite another to do it. <laughs> How do we do that? Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that's the moving. What does that phrase say? That's like turning the ship around, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is difficult. And I don't think that there's one answer to that. I think there are so many answers to that. I know that on a small scale, on an individual scale, as I've said before, as you've said before, we each can be a little more responsible for a little bit more of our food production. So mm -hmm. hunting, <clears throat> fishing, um, growing food, chicken, backyard chickens, all of that are, are components that help, right? And it means that any time that you, you don't have those skills or that knowledge and you go out and seek those skills, you're adding to the, to the overall bucket of people who have those skills and can then provide for themselves and provide for others. Mm -hmm. I can maybe grow tomatoes. 
right now. There you go. <laughs> but you know what I did? You know what I did, Liz? I'm so proud of myself. You won't be impressed, but <laughs> I got this app on my phone called Picture This. You uh, use your camera and you scan a plant and it tells you what it is. Yes, there's a few of those. And I don't know exactly how reliable they are. I, I don't know, but uh, I tested it on a few plants where I know what it is and it came up with the right answer. And I now know that I have a mandarin orange tree in my backyard here in Florida. And I'm so excited. <laughs> That's it's, wonderful. It's little. Yeah, it's little, but I have a food tree in my backyard. And, and I also learned that, um, well, I, I knew that I had a queen palm and the queen palm throws these little, uh, little nuts. It's not coconuts, but it's these little tiny uh, grape sized things and they are edible. Okay, great. They don't, they don't look delicious, but they are edible. So in a pinch, <laughs> anyway, I have food in my backyard and I didn't even have to do anything. But yeah, I, I, think, I, I do have some raised garden beds and I think I will grow tomatoes. Well, tomatoes are awesome. They're fantastic. And they're sure. easy enough for even me. <laughs> well, good. And then you get tomato sauces and tomato casseroles and all the tomato-y things. Um, Oh, so you all get dandelions, right? In Florida? You know, I can't recall seeing dandelions down here. I'm sure we do. Well, dandelions, every part of the plant is edible. And the root- That's amazing. It is amazing. There's this one, I've been to his lectures before. There's this one guy who grew up during the depression. And he has so many incredible stories, but they, they revolve around the fact that his family survived the depression by eating dandelions. And so when you have the root, the root is the higher calorie, the, it's got more, the more, more carbs, it's got plenty of nutrients, but you know, this is a good food source. It's an excellent food source. Wow. And yeah. And you know, it's also a great source of, um, for the bees, for the pollinators. Mm -hmm. So embrace the dandelions, right? That's absolutely I mean, one thing. Um, <laughs> you're not going to like this, but we're in an HOA where we just got a letter in the mail. They threatening to fine us about weeding our front lawn. Now we do have a back area where we can do whatever we want for the most part because we have a privacy fence. But I mean, that annoyed me. This is the first time we've ever lived in an HOA. So we just have, have to kind of put up with it. Um, but I, I do plan on getting elected to the board and taking over, you know, okay. That's <laughs> what I always I mean, promise I myself is that if I, if I must put up with an HOA, then I need to be the president. <laughs> there needs to be more of that initiative, right? Because the yeah. way I look at HOAs, it's like, now everything's different, but there is a lot of suburbia in this country and a lot of lawns and a lot of emphasis on lawns. And including among HOAs um, or even like city ordinances, right? You can't have your grass X number of inches high. And so as, as people become aware of the vulnerabilities in our food systems, and hopefully if, when people begin to understand kind of the complexities around it, which is very difficult, right? But understanding some of the complexities around it, the priorities will shift enough that some of those HOA rules will shift. Because who yeah. wants to like, who wants to tell people when there's real food shortages, whether it's particular food or, or much 
broader than that. Who wants to tell people you can't grow food in your yard? Right. Yeah. And until I take over the HOA, I have to put up with the rules, but that, that is in the works. There you go. <laughs> we'll get a team around you. Okay. Yeah. 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 And go back to the, the topic of, you know, the stratification of our culture and how this affects different people differently is that also many of our friends and neighbors and community members, maybe not immediate community members, but they don't have access to land. Right. And so the vulnerabilities and the potential for food shortages has a much greater impact on some people. Yeah. Like when the price of X, Y, or Z goes way high, they don't have the option. They, or maybe, you know, we're during the pandemic, you remember how the schools were handing out food boxes to yeah. families, right? Because the school lunch program, we didn't have that in place. I mean, that's an example of another vulnerability that even the people who are providing boxed food or uh, food pantry food, by boxed food, I mean like a box of food, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, that means that that's a, if that stops for whatever reason, an organization shuts down or funding doesn't come through or transportation issues occur, that's an extreme vulnerability. And so when people do not have access to land or any type of growing space, that's an extreme vulnerability. Dependency creates vulnerability. Absolutely, yeah. You do not want to be on the liability column of your government when the government uh, runs into difficulties. Yeah, or whatever. I mean, many of these initiatives are not government funded, which is refreshing and wonderful, but they are somehow funded. So what happens? What happens if prices go so high that the organizations? Yeah, the the, the, food, the food bank uh, no longer can function. Like we right now, I think we're still in a era of plenty. Yeah. Um, yeah, at, at my last job that I just left, somebody had a sister that worked at a food bank and they would bring in boxes to sit on in the break room of just bags of rice and cans of beans and all kinds of stuff that they couldn't get rid of at the food bank. So they would bring in and it was just take as much as you want. And I would take like all the rice, all the spaghetti, all of the, all of the shelf sta stable stuff. I mean, knowing that that's not the healthiest, but you know, I've got this mindset of, you know, take it and store it while you can. Um, but I mean, yeah, that shelf stable stuff is, is not the healthiest and you're going to have a lot of malnourished people that don't have access to vegetables, um, potentially. Yeah. And again, I mean, the, we don't know the timeline on this. Yeah right? Because there's so many vulnerabilities that it could be a natural disaster, mm -hmm. right? Like what we saw with Hurricane Katrina. I mean, that was so dreadful, but that was, that was exposure of vulnerabilities. Yeah. In a massive system, many vulnerabilities probably, but looking at the food system, that was exposure of the vulnerabilities there. Same with, um, uh, well, a couple others that have happened since then. Uh, but it could be a transportation issue. It could be a funding issue where, you know, this, this, this all works in, in ways that we cannot always anticipate, right? I mean, you're, you're so well-versed in the, 
economics of it, but if X prices skyrocket, what, how does that affect how everything becomes available or what's not available? And then how does that affect other prices? I mean, with the fuel prices skyrocketing, everything's going up because everything is getting transported. Yeah, and and not to get too political, but the current administration seems hell bent on declaring war on energy in all forms. Um, and and they, you know, they they might give lip service, but they do not consider this a problem to solve. They consider it part yeah. of a larger agenda to push everyone to to green energy. You know, they they want you to buy an electric car that you have to plug into your wall outlet. Meanwhile, <laughs> there's brownouts happening, you know, in certain pockets of the country where there is no electricity for parts of the day, you know, so they're they're attacking energy while the power grid is vulnerable. Anyway, not, well, you know, and, right. and I'm, I'm someone yeah. that drives an electric car and a, and a hybrid. That's our two cars is an electric and a hybrid. So, you know. But I'm, I am still very vulnerable to gas prices going up, diesel prices going up, because that affects my supply chain locally, whether or not I actually pay for it at the pump, I pay for it somehow. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very scary because these, uh, like Hurricane Katrina and things like that, you know, factories being attacked for whatever reason, terrorism, who knows what. Um, those things happen in an instant. Those things happen in one day. But as you pointed out, the the cycle for growing food lasts months and sometimes years. So uh, the idea of being prepared for those vulnerabilities, I think, is very important because you can't uh, you can't create a, a redundant food system the day after Hurricane Katrina hits, <laughs> you know, yes, you, exactly. you've either got it or you don't at that point. Exactly. And now one quick comment on energy. Um, the, when you really like boil it down to its essence, <laughs> everything is solar powered because that's where we're getting, like, that's what's growing food. That's what's powering us. That's what's building everything else. Like when you look at raw materials, how do we get them? Well, it's all solar powered. So if we can get a little bit back to the basics mm-hmm. and think about, you know, what can we do more of where the energy is direct sunlight to food to us? What can we do more of that is that level of like oh, yeah. expenditure? Because you're right. I mean, we have created incredible vulnerabilities in our power systems, right? Energy, whatever we want to term it in our um, non-natural energy sources. And ultimately what that leads to is a, what I'll say is a higher standard of living, quote unquote, that does nothing to necessarily improve our quality of life. And it's, it's also a very vulnerable standard of living and it creates, uh, it creates a stratification, but I want to use a different word because then it can create uh, tension and polarization within our communities between yeah. you have something I want, or I think I want because I've been told I want it. And then what? Then, but, I mean, class tensions. Exactly. And when, when you come more back to basics, it's like, 
when you're growing a garden with somebody, that is super basic. You're using, you're using this energy, right? That's coming from food. That's coming from the yeah. solar power that's growing the food or that's yeah. growing the grass that's feeding the cow. I mean, so when you, when you think about food, think about it in terms of seasons and cycles and what is that solar energy creating and providing truly, right? I mean, it, the, the solar power and solar energy has been now used to refer so much to the cells, right? I don't know all the physics of it or all the science behind it, but how do we take that energy from the sun and capture it in such a way that we can put it in the power grid and then it can keep our lights on all night long? Yeah, and they're, they're working on ways to make it more efficient. But I mean, honestly, I am all for solar power. I think it would be amazing to be off the grid. But right now, the efficiency, it just isn't there to completely replace. Because when the sun doesn't shine, you have no energy and you better have a robust battery backup system to store the daylight energy. And what about a places where the days are shorter, you know, yeah. right now I'm, I'm relatively close to the equator. So I'm, I'm in a good spot, you know, plenty of sunshine in Florida, but when you're in Alaska, you know, or at closer to the South pole, like it's, it's not practical. Like it, it, it's not a, it's not a good solution um, altogether. And also like those batteries that you have to have to store that energy to power you through the the night, um, those use rare earth min minerals, which can be, you know, environmentally a little iffy. <laughs> yes. and, and certainly economically, the and way they're mined, they, they're mined uh, you know, with slave labor, pretty yeah. much. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a good system that we have right now to get those rare earth minerals out of the ground. So you, you don't have a uh, a wholly sanctioned choice as right. far as humanity, as far as how do you get your energy? And, and it, it, it's not, it's, it, it's not like you can rely on foreign producers of energy. It's, it's not like Venezuelan oil or Russian oil is less environmentally impactful. If you're concerned about the earth, you know, getting energy from the United States and from domestic sources versus foreign sources I mean, wouldn't that be the same, you know, as far as if you're concerned about, you know, the green energy, um, if you're concerned about uh, crashing the American economy, well, then, yes, it would be better to go get Venezuelan oil. <laughs> well, Rachel, I have a couple of comments. About okay, okay. <laughs> That's a huge chunk, right? And like, this is the stuff that I think about all the time. And it's like, it becomes that, um, what is it the Gordian knot or something that gets all twisted in there it's like you can't you can't dissect it because you're right we live in this in this world we live in this the way it is now and so I have two comments on that one is conservation how can you use less of everything sure and then the other is um more people to a home right more people like and, you know, realistically, reasonably look at living situations. But when you think about like the, the use and, and the food, right? Like tying it all back into food, the energy use of a home and, you know, we, like 
it's mind boggling how many homes have like one or two people and they're like enormous, 5,000 square feet or 4,000 or whatever. And then when you think about just having more people, because it's the same energy expenditure, whether or not 10 people are living there or one person, those lights are on. Most houses have too many TVs going all at once. Uh, but I mean, you get the idea and it's like kind of the same sure. with food. It's like, if you're cooking for the quantities are different, but if you're cooking for two people versus cooking for six people, it's a lot of the same effort. The quantities are, are different. So that's, that's a, something you have to account for, but the that, effort. That's a, that's a good point. Yes. Efficiency um, and yeah, scale. Efficient. Yes. Um, so all of that matters. All of yeah. it. And if we yeah. make small adjustments towards conservation and towards production, right? Changing our mindset from a consumer mm -hmm. production, I mean, from a consumer mindset to a producer mindset can change a lot. You know, and, and that's a cultural thing. That's really interesting. You bring up the housing because um, one thing that I noticed moving from North Carolina to the DC metro area is housing is so expensive in DC that everybody lives together. There's a lot of uh, people renting out rooms in a big house and you'll rent out like four rooms and people will you know, live on the outskirts. They'll have a nice family home out there but they'll drive in and they'll use the available space and they'll rent out extra space that they have. Uh, that's that's a cultural phenomenon that's much more acceptable in an area where housing is expensive. So like the, the economics uh, sort of encourage that cultural change. Um, and so, yeah, may, maybe that will happen as housing and the price of everything goes up is people will be more willing to share housing. And that, that's one thing that I've... It always frustrates me, my friends and people that I know that complain about housing being so expensive, but they want a, like a, a single person apartment. You know, they don't want to share a two bedroom yeah. apartment. And it's just, it's so frustrating, it, but they have this mindset where oh, I can't get along with other people. I, I can't share housing with another person. It's like, you know, well, you pay for that. <laughs> So yeah. stop complaining or, or, you know, figure out how to get along with people. Go ahead. That reminds me that at, to some extent, um, and we're going to, I believe, I really believe we're going to see more and more of this. Our easy choices are over. Oh, wow. Right. We don't have that anymore. We have to make hard choices. And I know, I know it sucks. I mean, I've had to do this in my personal life many times over and there can be, there's, there's a lot of tension and a lot of stress that goes with that. But when you really fully understand that our easy choices are over and you have to make hard choices, then making those hard choices becomes that much easier. Yeah. Yeah. That much more. Just, uh, yeah. The, the longer you resist the hard choice, the, the worse it becomes for you psychologically. Yes, I mean, that, exactly. that's unfortunate. Um, but I, I, I agree with you. I mean, and the hard choices are coming faster for the, you know, lower income, more vulnerable 
parts of our absolutely economy. But they're also, it's also like, we're making choices. Like even middle-class America is every day making choices that we can, we're, we're often, and I, and I include myself in this, we're often blind to the impact of our choices on the lower socioeconomic groups and into other countries and other cultures. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to understand, and of course my focus, right, is that our food systems and our food choices affect everything else. So for example, buying strawberries in January in Maryland means that migrant farm workers are picking them in excessive, excessive conditions in parts of our country or other countries that grow strawberries in January. And now to me, now that is not an acceptable choice. Like it is not worth it for me to have a strawberry in January to know that I'm creating suffering and people I don't know and will never meet. Like that is not, that is not okay. That's not sufficient. That's not, so it's not a hard choice anymore. <laughs> like I can imagine that for some people not having strawberries all winter long might be a hard choice. And I'm That's... using this as like a superficial level, but we can dig deep and find it in every area of our lives. That's an amazing mindset. I don't think most people go to the grocery store and even think about that, but that's amazing. And that's because our food systems are so invisible to most people. Invisible. But I guarantee you, if you spend one afternoon picking strawberries, even just a few hours, you will have a new appreciation for what other people go through to get strawberries. Yeah. Strawberries grow in heat. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you pick them in heat and they're down on the ground. Yeah. They're not at an easy height, right? Blueberries are at an easy height. Strawberries, no. So that means you're kneeling down or bending down in the heat, in the sun and picking strawberries nonstop. I remember in Raleigh, there was a strawberry farm close by and it would be like a fun thing to take the kids. In fact, we had a, a preschool field trip at the strawberry farm and the kids had a great time. Of course, they're close to the ground, so it's easy they for are. them. And I'm like, child labor, <laughs> this, would, this would be a good instance. <laughs> they're right down there on the ground anyway. <laughs> Pick a strawberry while you're down there. <laughs> well, it's a very different activity if you're picking strawberries to sustain, well, not sustain, but to well, yeah, that for, was for one family to enjoy for a week versus yeah. picking strawberries because your life's labor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was all fun and games, but yeah. That's but that's the point. kind of thing. I mean, finding local sources of strawberries and being willing to pay the prices, right? One, pay the prices for that local production where people are actually getting paid fairly. Or if you're picking them yourself, you're not getting paid to pick them. You're paying to pick them, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is better overall. And then being willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to feed into the system that causes so much suffering in other human beings. I mean, wow. it's intense. When you look at the migrant farm situation, it is intense. It is extremely unethical and it, it demands more of our attention. Yeah. That's a lot of food for thought. Yeah, there you have it, food for thought. Mm -hmm. And Rachel, you commented on it a couple of minutes ago. I'll bring it around 
Yeah. Uh, more people living together, building community because there's yeah. always the networks to build and find people you can share responsibilities with, right? Cause it's not just about like sharing housing and sharing, maybe sharing a garden isn't just about like having to inconvenience yourself for somebody else. It's also about like, Hey, you really get to divide up responsibilities here. Oh yeah. I would love a wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Not, not in a gay way, but man, sometimes I think it'd be nice to have another woman around to, to split the responsibilities with, um, how neat would that be? But I mean, it reminds me, I, I think I brought up a couple, a couple of podcasts ago about uh, the Indian community uh, where I was selling homes in, in Raleigh. They would buy gigantic homes and it'd be three, four generations living all under one roof. Not that any of them was spectacularly wealthy. They would buy these million dollar, you know, 9,000 square foot homes, but that's housing for maybe 20 people. Yeah, there you go several family units. And, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. And it's shared responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Because it'd be like, you know, maybe three, four generations of women all in the kitchen making dinner together. And what a, what a cool bonding experience. We can have that back. It takes <laughs> intentional effort and intentional choice, but we can have that back. You gotta, ex you gotta convince your extended family though. <laughs> well, That's I mean, the hard we're part. Not whether or not it's immediate family or extended family or a community create you create for yourself. I mean, it, it is happening all over the place in pockets and uh, you know, we can add to it, be intentional about it. Little communes. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, Voluntary they communes. <laughs> they don't have to be called communes, right? That's a trigger word for some people. Yeah. But it, it's, it's different wherever you are. And like, like you said, in the cities, like, just that whole roommate situation. Yeah. Right. That's an example. Yeah. I mean, find what works and, and, and then grow a garden that way. Right. Garden yeah. with people. I mean, Share in all, in all fairness to the word commune, I, I think a lot of libertarians even like the idea of a little compound, if you want to mm -hmm. call it that, as long as it's voluntary, yes. <laughs> as long as you, you can come and go and create your own rules and your own little small government right there. Um, and come and go as as you need to, um, yeah. The, the, yeah, the word the word commune does have a um, a reputation. Yes, <laughs> community. Let's use yeah, the word community. Yeah, community. Because that can look so many different ways to different people, mm -hmm. and it can be based on different values, but all around the concept of shared responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts? Um, I think I covered everything I wanted to say. You covered a lot. You had some really good bits of wisdom in there. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> good chat, Liz. Good chat. I love it. All right. And remember, don't get triggered by the news, right? Yes. Calm down. Take a deep breath. Uh, stay grounded. And keep your head on a swivel, though. I mean, yes. keep your head on a swivel, definitely. Maybe we and should prepare. add that the closing remarks. Yeah, it, it would be better to prepare and uh, not have needed your extra prep work than to have needed it and not have thought ahead to prepare. Indeed. Okay. There's, a, there's a better way to phrase that, but you get what I mean. <laughs> keep your head on a swivel. 
eat yeah. for health, know your neighbor, and grow some food. Grow some food. All right, Rachel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.